on today's episode of Heritage Hunters. What would I say if I can have an hour with my ancestors, just an auditorium full of folks? Could you imagine that? An auditorium full of folks. And what would they say to us? When I found out that nobody knew about it, that it had lapsed into total obscurity, I thought, well, that's not right. And so I decided to actually form a, an organization to help found an organization about it and start bringing the story of the Justice Bell and the women's suffrage movement to not only the public, but also to schools. Hi, I'm Barbara. And I'm Hope. And we, we are, are the Heritage, Heritage Hunters. Each month, we will bring you real stories from real people researching their genealogy and family history to inspire you on your genealogical journey. My name is Dennis Richmond Jr. I was born and raised in Yonkers, New York. I'm 27 years old. And one of my biggest passions is genealogy. I started researching when I was 13, back in 2008. And the reason being is because, unfortunately, I don't have one of those cool genealogy stories. I was watching Roots with my dad. And for those who don't know, Roots is a television miniseries. And it was really fascinating to me. And I remember it going off. And I had asked my dad one day in our living room, I said, dad, what happens next? And he said, that's it. And I said, that's it. And he said, yeah. And I said, oh, and then I thought, well, I probably have people who were living back then. And I went on a computer and I just started researching. I happened to go on Ancestry.com and one thing led to another and the rest is literally history. I read that amazing article in the New York Times and Hope did too. <laughs> and how far back have you been able to get now? Sure. So on dad's side, which is extremely well documented in America, beautifully documented in New York and Connecticut, I am now back as far as seven, around 1771. Pictures going back to about 1897. We have a family Bible that spans back roughly 100 years that I was really fortunate to inherit within the past two years. And I'm really lucky, especially because it has writings in it from my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother, which I did not expect. So to see things written in that, I don't know what they were going through 60 and 70 and 80 years ago, but to know that they wrote favorite passages or that they traveled like to DC. And I'm like, what was my great-grandmother doing in DC 80 years ago? So it's interesting to learn things. <laughs> It gives you a nice glimpse into their lives, doesn't it? I was interviewing a young lady a couple of weeks back. And as I was talking to her, I actually found a website called enslaved.org. Have you used that particular resource at all? I have not. You are teaching me right now and I am open to learning. Okay. There is a workshop coming up Tuesday, November 15th. The Mount Vernon Genealogical Society is presenting Enslaved.org, a short digital history with Dr. Daryl Williams. Dr. Williams will discuss the Enslaved Project and give you a tour of the open source, open access online discovery tool to reconstruct the lives of the enslaved. Please visit 
mvgenealogy.org for additional information. But I had gone on and looked at the website and I forget how we had circled around and I had found it, but it seemed to have um, stories and biographical sketches of slaves, slave owners, and also the people who helped to free the slaves, a lot of the, um, the Underground Railroad folks. So it, I, I didn't know if anyone had ever used that that particular resource yet when they're researching their genealogy. So it'd be interesting to find out how it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'm glad to know about it. I You're did welcome. not know about that resource at all. And while on the topic, on my father's side of the family, there were what many would call quasi-free Blacks or quasi-free African-Americans, where mm -hmm. prior to the Civil War, they were not enslaved. So I have ancestors who were free going back to the 1840s and the 1820s and 1810s. And that baffles me because so much of American history that's pushed says enslaved, but there's really huge pockets of folks who were not. Now on mom's side, on the other hand, dad's family goes back to New York and Connecticut. Mom's side is in South Carolina. And what makes that mm -hmm. amazing is that South Carolina, unlike many other states, didn't have really small farms with an indentured servant or two, unless you go back really far to the colonial era. They had sprawling plantations, 500 folks, 800 folks, 1,000 folks. And I come from ancestors who were on those big sprawling plantations. So you look at it one way and it's like, oh my goodness, this is so sad, that's terrible. But from a genealogical standpoint, when you have these big sprawling plantations and folks who cared enough to document, it is a genealogical gold mine. I found one source from about 1851, and this man listed every single person that was owned, all 390 some odd people in family units with ages. And I was able to find ancestors, and this is again, 18, what, I believe about 1851. So ancestors who I saw in the 1870 United States federal census, I was able to locate them as children and then see them with siblings and parents. That was another thing about those big sprawling plantations because they weren't so intimate. There was a lot of room for culture. You're welcome to spread. So folks were able to pass down names so coming from West Africa, a lot of parts of West Africa had people who would name folks after, say, days of the week or months. And that trickled down in South Carolina, in Georgia, in places where there's Gullah Geechee culture. And that was in my family, too. So it's a lot. And I love it. And at the risk of signing repetitive, that's why I'm excited to be on Heritage Hunters because I get to talk about it and not sound crazy. <laughs> no, and we love we, to hear about it. <laughs> we know that feeling very well. We have plenty of our circle of friends. Their eyes tend to glaze over when we start talking genealogy. So we're right there with you, Dennis. We know. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> what have you found to be your favorite resource to use? I would love to say Ancestry because that's where I first received my genealogical footing, if you will. Mm -hmm. Definitely Ancestry, because my tree is on Ancestry. You know, I've done DNA research through Ancestry. Ancestry has been a very good website to me. And I've seen it grow 
along with myself as far as research. And I think a lot of genealogists can say that we've seen that website really come along because just what, six, seven years ago, it wasn't what it is today. I was around when it first started. So <laughs> Ancestry.com has come a long way. Tell me about your DNA test. Was it able to narrow down what part of Africa your family came from? Sure. So the DNA tests were really surprising because as we all know, DNA skips. So I have relatives who have more this than me and I have more this than them. And one thing that I was able to do was test a lot of older relatives. And I'm glad that I was able, I know as genealogists, that's the goal. I tapped into this side and, you know, this side. And when you have folks who are in their eighties and you can get them to test, that is just awesome because then you can compare and do this and do that. I was able to, <laughs> I was able to find out quite a bit on dad's side, a surprise, there's Filipino ancestry. And I did not expect to find Filipino ancestry on dad's side. I don't know where that came from. Granted, there was a lot going on in New York and Connecticut, so I have more research to do. On mom's side, it's remarkable to know that there is 100% West African DNA, which is extremely remarkable because based on history, people would say, I'm sure there's some mixing somewhere. Dad's side, it's a huge puzzle. There's pieces everywhere. Germany and Italy and Nigeria and Ghana and the Philippines. And you take a little bit of everybody and then boom, there's my dad. But mom's side, it's strictly, no, everyone's from here. And then they went to South Carolina and then now they're in New York. Yeah, Cameroon popped up for everyone on dad's side. Everyone who tested, that's the number one Cameroon. Cameroon. On mom's side, based on naming patterns that we've seen, in documents and based on DNA from me and other relatives, Ghana is very prevalent. Huh. It's really interesting. Do you have any desire to go there to, to Cameroon and Ghana? Absolutely. I very much do. I have to go to all of these places. I have to take a trip to the Philippines too and say, does anybody have any documentation for me? See what I can find. Have you made any new family connections? Cousins are very... Beautiful people. Yes, I've met cousins on both sides, some of whom have been very open and welcoming and have shared everything. And others who sometimes you just wish, you know what? You're sure we share DNA? How far back is it that we share DNA? There are some people who I talk to every day. And social media has really leveled the playing field because at this point, you add someone on Facebook or you have someone on Twitter, and then, you know, oh yeah, we're cousins and that's that. But Definitely. There's some really amazing cousins. Like I have a cousin named Isaiah and we're connected through our fifth great grandparents who are siblings. And I think that's so crazy because like, our fifth great grandparents are siblings, but we know that for a fact. And here we are and we talk. I started doing a one name study of one of the Polish surnames. And when I reached out to some of the cousins, the distant cousins, meeting the new cousins, quote unquote, new cousins, because I like to see what our similarities are and what our differences are. It's really neat when you can come face to face with someone who you've never met before and say, oh yeah, I see where we're related. I totally get it. I, I think that's a lot of fun. That's one of my favorite parts about genealogy, not just the going back as far as you can part, but also the bringing it forward. It just really gives a sense of unity to me what makes it so interesting as well is that 
what happened when we look back and it's wow she lived 100 years ago or he lived 300 years ago or they lived 200 years ago what happens when it's us and we have a great niece or a nephew or maybe even third or fourth or fifth great grandchildren and they look and say oh no because hope I think was my eighth great grandmother. I just, I don't know where she was born. If I knew where she was born or, you know, I think Barbara Jean was born somewhere in Can- I don't know. I don't have a birth certificate. And it's like, we all know where we were born. Just like majority of our ancestors knew, but we're trying to figure it out. And they knew. So it's, if you can go back in time and ask us, well, yeah, Scotland, why, why wouldn't I know I was born in Scotland? Or it's like Nigeria, who wouldn't know that? But today is unfortunately great grandpa, that record doesn't exist anymore. So I don't know. What would you say is the most important tip you've learned since starting genealogy? I love these questions. The most important tip that I've learned when starting genealogy has been to always, has been to never give up because you never know what's out there until you know that it's out there. Never know what's out there until you know that it's out there. It doesn't matter how many times you've checked that digital resource online. It doesn't matter how many times you've went into that archive. It doesn't matter how many times you've scoured that library because that one random day when ancestors are ready for you to find something and you go, wait a minute, but I looked already. Why didn't I find this before? Yeah, so it's never give up because it's out there. The picture is there somewhere. The document is there somewhere. The cousin to bring you that connection is there somewhere. You just can't give up. And sometimes you have to give it a week, a month, a couple months, maybe a year or two. But when that connection is finally there, it's all the more powerful because you can say, this took two years and I finally did it. Tuesday, November 15th, 2022, the Mount Vernon Genealogical Society is presenting Enslaved.org, a short digital history with Dr. Daryl Williams. Dr. Williams will discuss the Enslaved Project and give a tour of this open source, open access online discovery tool to reconstruct the lives of the enslaved. You'll learn what the platform offers and how to access and use its various features. Please visit mvgenealogy.org for additional information and registration. On Saturday, November 19, 2022, the Connecticut Society of Genealogists presents Map Magic for Genealogists with Sarah E. Campbell. Sarah will talk about the history of map making, categories of maps that can be used in research, and where to find historic maps. Please visit CSG imc.org for additional information and registration. My name is Amanda Owen and I am the executive director of the Justice Belt Foundation. This is a nonprofit. We started in 2016. Our mission is to educate, inspire, and mobilize current and future voters. A lot of what we're doing is bringing stories of women from women's history, 
forward, particularly from the women's suffrage era. There were just hundreds of thousands of women who fought for voting rights in this country, and we are very focused on bringing attention to those women. We also have our history project. Three nonprofits have come together, Justice Bell Foundation, Wild West Women, and the National Women's History Alliance, which is a national women's history organization. We've come together to try to get more interest in women's history. In 2020, it was the 100 year anniversary of the 19th Amendment. And so all organizations involved in promoting the women's suffrage movement and women's voting rights came together with a lot of programming. Then of course, March 2020, the pandemic happened. And there are just countless presentations and events that were shelved in 2020 because of the pandemic. And so that there's been some concern among many of the women's history organizations that we've lost our chance to really bring to the public information about particularly the women's suffrage movement. So some of us were getting together and talking and we thought, what if we came together and created an organization, which we now call our History Project, and look into genealogy. The thinking of this was with the hundreds of thousands of women who fought for voting rights, that means there are hundreds of thousands of descendants of women who are really heroes who dedicated their lives, often at great cost to themselves, to fight for voting rights. So the idea that so many of us have in our own family minds, these remarkable women, we thought, what if people knew how to find these ancestors, these women, learned a little bit about them? The thinking of this is they will be as excited about women's contribution to our democracy and to our nation as we are. That's how this came together with Wild West Women, the Justice Bell Foundation, and the National Women's History Alliance. We are just getting started, and I'm so glad to be working with you. We are very new to genealogy, and so we are just starting really with two families who have suffered just in their families. We don't know a whole lot about them. We know some. And so we are going to be following the York sisters from York County, Pennsylvania, who were very active in York County and Pennsylvania, particularly in the Pennsylvania state drive to get women voting rights in Pennsylvania in 1915, and then later the federal amendment, the 19th amendment in 1920. So for these two women, Etha and Clara Armstrong, we're going to be speaking with a descendant of theirs and people in York County who are doing a lot to bring this whole family, their accomplishments forward. And then the second family is Louise Hall, who was a dedicated suffragist who worked in many states actually for forced suffrage. And her brother, Oliver, actually was known as Ollie, was also a dedicated suffragist. So we are also going to be following Louise and Ollie through Linda Hall, who is a 
descendant by marriage, her late husband was the great nephew of Louise Hall. All of these women have remarkable stories and remarkable accomplishments. And so we're going to be very focused on them, but we're really widening our reach into other suffragists and their descendants. We'll be posting them on our website and our YouTube channel at ourhistoryproject.org and also through justicebellfoundation.org. So we're hoping to get the excitement and also the help from your audience as we look for information about these suffragists and can match the descendants and ancestors and help people find these heroes. That sounds great. We're very excited to be able to help with this. And until we had spoken the first time, I did not know what the Justice Bell was. Can you give us just a brief snippet about that? The Justice Bell was a 2,000 pound bronze replica of the Liberty Bell. And the only difference was it had the words establish justice, which is from the preamble to the Constitution. And this huge bell was like a branding tool in 1915 as the women of Pennsylvania were trying to get the men of Pennsylvania to vote yes on women's suffrage. There was a referendum that year. And so they got this bell that it made and it traveled 5,000 miles throughout the state through 1915 in a huge kind of get out the vote campaign resulting in the election of November 2nd, 1915. This was Amendment 1. And so the bell was actually nationally known. It was known by millions of people. Even in the middle of nowhere in, in Pennsylvania in farm country, teeny little town, like 4,000 people would come out to see this bell. This is how famous it was. And when I found out that nobody knew about it, that it had lapsed into total obscurity, I thought, well, that's not right. And so I decided to actually form a, an organization to help found an organization about it and start bringing the story of the Justice Bell and the women's suffrage movement to not only the public, but also to schools. That's terrific, Amanda. I love that you did that. And for our listeners, I encourage you to go and learn the story of the Justice Bell and a little bit of background about it and how Amanda found it. And it's really a fascinating journey that Amanda's been on. And I just wanted to say that. Thank you. So I'm really looking forward to working with you, finding some information regarding Etha and Clara Armstrong, as well as Louise and Ollie Hall. What do you hope you'll find in the future? Do you have, is there one piece of information that would be your piece of gold? Oof, I have two and I really cannot decide which one would be bigger for me. So my great grandfather was in World War II and his name was Thomas Sinclair Watkins. Grandpa Thomas is one who I know everything about. He was born 1910 and he died at 61 years old in 1971. So pretty late as far as pictures go. Folks who die in like the 20s or 30s, you can understand not having pictures of, but once you get into the 50s, 60s and 70s in America, everybody had a little brownie camera. Everybody was snapping pictures. He was in the service and he was in the CBI, the China Burma India unit. And I have 
everything about him. I have all of his military records. I know all of the awards that he's been given. I know that he became a sergeant. He's lived a very interesting life. He's been arrested numerous times in New York prior to going in the service because he had a very fun time running numbers as a young man. So all of these things, and I don't have a picture of him in regalia in the service. And it baffles me. We've had them, but unfortunately, no one has them anymore. All of his army pictures, I don't have one. So I would love to see him in full-on regalia in his sergeant uniform, somewhere in Burma, somewhere coming home. I would love that. Number two, right now, I'm back to my six times great-grandparents, York and Tamar Felmetta. And they were both born around 1771 in the colonies in colonial New York and Connecticut. And I would love to know who their parents were because my seven times great grandparents would be the generation of folks who were alive to see and remember the American Revolution. So whoever Grandpa York and Grandma Tamar's parents were, those were like super American ancestors. Like those are the ones who saw it. Like they had children who were running around when the bombs were bursting in air and the flag was still there. <laughs> those are my two. How will you be sharing your research with your family? I've found that the easiest way for me to do that is with social media, but graphics go a long way because I used to send long, drawn out, boring text messages. And as, as much as you think that's great, I don't think that other people think that's great. But when you can take a picture and then add a little caption to it and make it bite-sized enough where you can just send it, then people tend to like that a lot better. So quick, nice, easy social media post or a little family collage, like, oh, it's grandma such and such's birthday. So here's some pictures and some fun facts about her. And it's, oh, wow, I didn't know this. So that's where I get that from. So definitely making information non- Make, making it understandable and making it quick, because to us, we'll sit there and read the whole book, but people don't always want to do that. In the news article, you were talking about a little bit about the secrecy of some of the events that occurred because they were traumatic, and which I totally get. Mm -hmm. I've seen the same thing with the Polish side of the family. I think with a lot of the different nationalities, I guess that's the way to say it, mm -hmm. they all have bad things that have happened in the past and they just mm -hmm. don't want to talk and all they really wanted to do back in the early 1900s when most of my family got here was assimilate into American life they didn't want to talk about being German or being Polish or what was going on in the world at the time so Hope did you have you seen that with your family with your immigrants with the Germans I can remember my grandmother talking German when we were little but they didn't do it very often because and like when they came over and with the war and German, you didn't want to be German. Grandpa Thomas, prior to his time in the service, was born March 16th, 1910 in Elkhorn, West Virginia. And he grew up in Pottstown, Pennsylvania, which is in Montgomery County. And his aunt and uncle were in Connecticut. So he would be in Connecticut and he learned everything there. He would take trips to New York and he got in with a crowd who, and as I learned, and put pieces together. I'm like, oh, so that's what happened. So his aunt worked at 
this like nightclub part place and he loves his aunt. So I could imagine her taking him as a young man, 16, 17, 18, to this place and him learning these interesting characters who probably said, oh, you know what? Why don't you young, really handsome, hazel eyes, then they turn gray. So his eyes were just, why don't you do this and do that? So he's in with this crowd and he likes to run numbers. So he was a number runner. Iconic person at the time, Dutch Schultz, says any African-American or the term Negro, any Negroes who don't want to join my regime are going to get it. I'm going to make sure that I use my resources to handle what's going on. So as time is moving on, as time is moving on, all of these Negro bankers, folks who have big money who are running numbers in Harlem and Westchester and all across New York are not trying to join Dutch Schultz. I found a newspaper article about that announcement being made in Manhattan, in New York. The next day, my great grandfather gets arrested in a pool hall. And it is said that it was because he was caught and then he was the runner and someone else had the policy slips. So they tried to make it so that way he didn't have the stuff on him. So I thought, wait a minute, this was because of Dutch Schultz. Because here's an article saying that if you are a Negro who runs numbers and you're not working basically for me, I'm gonna make sure that the police are running down on you. And then outside of New York City the next day, the police are running down him. So I put two and two together and I was like, could it be that the people that my great grandfather worked for were not with, so I was like, wow, look at that. So now my big thing would be, do the five families of New York fit in here? Are the Gambinos in here somewhere? And it goes back to your point, like for us it's interesting, but for them, I'm sure it was probably scary stuff. Like when they ran in this pool hall and they were like, what are you doing? And he was like, what do you mean? What am I doing? And he got arrested. What did that mean for him? What did right. that mean for family? This is a man who was African-American was arrested numerous times and never serves more than three days in jail. Now that's interesting. You've never served more than three days in jail and you, all of this stuff that you've done. And oh, and our newspaper article, and he was bailed out for X amount of money. I'm like, who's bailing him out? How does, you know, what connections do you have? I want to ask him so many questions. Like, who did you know? Like, Wait. it's so interesting. <laughs> that's awesome though. That's a good story. I like it. I need a mugshot. Where are the mugshot pictures? <laughs> yes, yes. Maybe get this man has got to have some pictures out there. <laughs> Absolutely. Now for the big question. Yes. What is your favorite thing about genealogy? I love that. My favorite thing about genealogy is that all of the beautiful people I get to research made me. That's the best part that they all made me. The Grandpa Thomas and all of his number running somehow passed it along to me where after all my bills are paid and I know that everything is good I will love to buy a scratch off or try and win the billion dollar powerball and I'm like you know what grandpa this one's for you let's see what can happen see if it ain't this whole ancestor luck works they made me to know that my grandmother who never bit her tongue can come out in me sometimes. And I'm like, yep, that's grandma. <laughs> Women who were born in the 30s who came up in a different time because they saw their mothers who made it through the depression 
have to be tough. So they picked up on being tough too. And it, all of that, knowing that these people did something that allowed me to be on Heritage Hunters. <laughs> I do have to say, and I hate saying this, but the New York Times quoted you with one thing that was completely wrong. They quote you as saying, that's where the story begins in St. Stephen, South Carolina. That's wrong. The story begins with you. Thank you. You're welcome. That's so nice. Thank you. That means a whole lot to me. That is the truth. Your story begins with you. And I think that's the best thing that we can tell any genealogist out there is begins with you. So yes, you're definitely a part of a much bigger picture. We all are, which is great. Do you have any plans <laughs> to pursue genealogy professionally? I definitely have to get my certification. And it's so interesting because I, as a as a teenager, I felt as if, oh, okay, it's genealogy. Once you know how to do it, you're certified. What do you mean? But there are definitely credentials that you can have in the field. There are things that you should know and things that you can brush up on that you might not be too quite privy to. So that's definitely a thing. I was one of those teenagers who would always tell people, I can probably tell you more about your family than you. So when I was in high school, fun fact about Dennis, I would actually get paid from, and you can say this now because I have not been in high school forever. I would get paid from teachers and it was high school. So they'd be like, oh, here's 20 bucks or here's 40 bucks. Or some teachers, here's a hundred bucks. And I would go right on Ancestry and I do some research for about two or three days. And I come up with nice little packets of family. And I say, I was able to take your family back to 1880. Or I was able to take your family back to this and that. Here's the immigration record on that. And people loved it. And as a teenager, I had no idea what I was doing. I'm like, I'm just finding out stuff online. But I didn't know how moving it could be for a person to see a document with their great-grandfather's name on it. And when they came through Ellis Island or someone to be able to know the person who owned their family or someone to see a World War II draft registration card. Yeah, that was nice because what teenager doesn't want to eat McDonald's and now you have McDonald's money or because you found a death certificate. I wish more younger people got involved. My children have absolutely no interest in this. They're in their 20s, but I do have my second cousin once removed. He's 13 and I'm probably going to wind up passing all this stuff on to him right. when I get older. I'm not ready to let go yet. What draws us all together it doesn't matter the color of our skin. It doesn't matter the religious background. It doesn't matter the socioeconomic status. Families, once upon a time, were just not writing books. That was not something that majority of Americans did. That's not something the majority of people did. So that's not to say people didn't know where they came from. I'm sure you had folks who came from Poland who knew massive amounts of information about their family who maybe even had oral histories passed down to them for a century or two but no one wrote it down and then when people passed away it was gone you know what what if ellis island had a family history requirement and they said how much do you know about your family and they put that on the back of applications what if when folks were sold during slavery they said what do you know about your family and at the bottom of every document they wrote this person is a son of or daughter of and grandchild of things that you would wish you can just or my question that I ask all the time what would I say 
if I can have an hour with my ancestors, just an auditorium full of folks. Could you imagine that? An auditorium full of folks. And what would they say to us? Stop telling people I was arrested in 1929. I say, I am so sorry. I will not. <laughs> I don't know Barbara anything Jean. else. What else is there? <laughs> I'd have one saying, Barbara Jean, stop telling people about me being arrested for fishing on a Sunday. We can, and we could laugh about it now, but again, it, I'm sure it's things that really bothered people. But now when you say it today, all you can do is just smile because it's just history. But I'm sure some ancestors would have some choice, choice words for us, I'm sure. Or how did you not go? The record is in Ohio. Go to the archives, go to the whatever floor. And that's where it is. I've been trying to show you for three years. It doesn't matter that I've lived in Pennsylvania all my no. life. That record is in Ohio. Not that book, the one next to it. That's what I keep pointing at. Oh my goodness. This is like genealogy awesome. gold. I know the article also mentioned you have Native American genealogy. How did you find this? So on dad's side, I'm telling dad, it's just puzzle pieces everywhere because they were in New York and Connecticut for so long that it goes back to colonial Connecticut, colonial New York, when there were a lot of indigenous folks around too. So you have your Algonquin, you have the Manhattan, you have all of these folks who are around and they all are there. So folks would say Afro-Indigenous. There's someone who, not someone, but there's a lot of people who do research in that. And when you go back far enough, you hit Dutch because it was New Amsterdam, it was Dutch New Amsterdam. So to know that there's that history too, I don't know how far back Grandpa York and Grandma Tamar's DNA ancestry goes here, but the last name is a last name called F-E-L-M-E-A. And that was, like, there's no origin that I'm able to find yet of that, other than the fact that there's a man by the name of Jeffrey Felmetta, who I believe is Grandpa York's brother, and mm-hmm. I don't know who their parents are, but Jeffrey Felmetta has land records in Connecticut going back to the 1780s. So clearly this was a family of color who was, who, you know, had land transactions in the 1780s. And I'm like, what? Seriously? Like that's remarkable to me. But what if they were not just African-American? What if they were also indigenous? And then on certain documents, it just says like of color, but that meant indigenous. You know what I mean? I, I'm right. gonna have to call up some ancestors and ask some questions. And shout out to the extraordinary young person all the way in Ireland, Daniel, who is making beautiful strides in genealogy because he is really He's killing it. Yes, he is yes, killing yes. it. Daniel came and talked on our Gen Z episode. And mm-hmm. yeah, he's a great guy. Heritage Hunters, <laughs> thank you so much for everything that you do for the genealogical community. Thank you for thank being you. a beautiful ray of light to keep us all going. And thank you so much for allowing me to have this interview because this was phenomenal. your family history is the history of the locations of your ancestors. Think of how these world events had an impact on small towns and the lives of your ancestors. November 1st, 1848. 
The first medical school for women opened in Boston. The Boston Female Medical School was founded by Samuel Gregory with just 12 students. In 1874, the school merged with the Boston University School of Medicine, becoming one of the first co-ed medical schools. November 2, 1947, the first and only flight of Howard Hughes Spruce Goose flying boat occurred in Long Beach Harbor, California. It flew about a mile at an altitude of 70 feet, costing $25 million. The 200-ton plywood eight-engine Hercules was the world's largest airplane designed, built, and flown by Hughes. It later became a tourist attraction alongside the Queen Mary ship at Long Beach and has since been moved to Oregon. November 3, 1957, Soviet Russia launched the world's first inhabited space capsule, Sputnik 2, which carried a dog named Leica. November 4, 1862, Richard Gatling patented his first rapid-file machine gun, which used revolving barrels rotating around a central mechanism to load, fire, and extract the cartridges. November 5, 1733, the first issue of the New York Weekly Journal was published by John Peter Zenger, a colonial American printer and journalist. A year later, he was arrested on charges of libeling New York's royal governor. November 5, 1911, aviator C.P. Snow completed the first transcontinental flight across America, landing at Pasadena, California. He had taken off from Sheepshead Bay, New York on September 17th and flew a distance of 3,417 miles. November 6, 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected as the 16th U.S. President and the first Republican. He received 180 of 303 possible electoral votes and 40% of the popular vote. November 7th, 1811, General William H. Harrison led 1,000 Americans in battle, defeating the Shawnee Indians at the Battle of Tippecanoe Creek near Lafayette, Indiana. November 7, 1967, Carl Stokes became the first African-American mayor in the U.S. elected mayor of Cleveland, Ohio. November 7, 1989, L. Douglas Wilder became the first African-American governor in U.S. history, elected governor of Virginia. November 8, 1895, X-rays were discovered by Wilhelm Röntgen at the University of Würzburg in Germany. November 8, 1942, Operation Torch, the Allied landings in North Africa, began as 400,000 soldiers under the command of General Dwight D. Eisenhower landed at Morocco and Algeria. November 9, 1872, the Great Boston Fire started in a dry goods warehouse that then spread rapidly in windy weather, destroying nearly 800 buildings. Damage was estimated at more than $75 million. The fire's bright red glare could be seen in the sky for nearly 100 miles. November 9, 1965. At 5.16 p.m., the Great Blackout of the Northeast began as a tripped circuit breaker at a power plant on the Niagara River caused a chain reaction, sending power surges knocking out interconnected power companies down the East Coast. The blackout affected over 30 million people, one-sixth of the entire U.S. population. Electricity also failed in Ontario and Quebec. November 10, 1775, the U.S. Marine Corps was established as part of the U.S. Navy. It became a separate unit on July 11, 1789. November 11, 1918. 
At 5 a.m. in Marshall Fox Railway Car in Forest of Campania, the armistice between the Allied and Central Powers was signed, silencing the guns of World War I effective at 11 a.m., the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. In many places in Europe, a moment of silence in memory of the millions of fallen soldiers is still observed. November 11, 1938. Irving Berlin's God Bless America was first performed. He had written the song especially for radio entertainer Kate Smith, who sang it during her regular radio broadcast. It soon became a patriotic favorite of Americans and was one of Smith's most requested songs. November 13, 1927. The Holland Tunnel was open to traffic. The tunnel runs under the Hudson River between New York City and Jersey City and was the first underwater tunnel built in the U.S. It is comprised of two tubes, each large enough for two lanes of traffic. November 13, 1942. The five Sullivan brothers from Waterloo, Iowa, were lost in the sinking of the cruiser USS Juno by a Japanese torpedo off Guadalcanal during World War II in the Pacific. Following their deaths, the U.S. Navy changed regulations to prohibit close relatives from serving on the same ship. November 13, 1956, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racial segregation on public buses was unconstitutional. November 15, 1777, the Articles of Confederation were adopted by Continental Congress. November 15, 1864, during the American Civil War, Union troops under General William T. Sherman burned Atlanta. November 15, 1969, the largest anti-war rally in U.S. history occurred as 250,000 persons gathered in Washington, D.C. to protest the Vietnam War. November 17, 1734, New York Weekly Journal publisher John Peter Zanger was arrested and charged with libeling the colonial governor of New York. In his trial, held August of 1735, truth was successfully used as a defense against libel, an important early step toward the freedom of the press in America. November 18, 1477, William Caxton printed the first book in the English language, The Dicks and Sayings of the Philosophers. November 19, 1868, New Jersey suffragists attempted to vote in the presidential election to test the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which states, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. 172 suffragists, including four African-American women, were turned away. Instead, they cast their votes in a women's ballot box overseen by 84-year-old Quaker Margaret Pryor. November 20, 1789, New Jersey became the first state to ratify the Bill of Rights. November 22, 1963, at 12.30 p.m. on Elm Street in downtown Dallas, President John F. Kennedy's motorcade slowly approached a triple underpass. Shots rang out. The president was struck in the back, then in the head. He was rushed to Parkland Memorial Hospital, where 15 doctors tried to save him. At 1 p.m., John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States, was pronounced dead. On board Air Force One, at 2.38 p.m., Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn in as the 36th President. November 24, 1863. 
The Battle of Chattanooga took place during the American Civil War as General Ulysses Grant's soldiers scaled heavily fortified Lookout Mountain and overran Confederate General Braxton Bragg's army. November 25, 1783. At the end of the Revolutionary War, the last British troops left New York City. November 26, 1789. The first American holiday occurred, proclaimed by President George Washington to be Thanksgiving Day, a day of prayer and public thanksgiving in gratitude for the successful establishment of the new American Republic. November 26, 1832. The first horse-drawn streetcar carried passengers in New York City along 4th Avenue between Prince Street and 14th Street. November 28, 1942. Fire erupted inside the Coconut Grove nightclub in Boston, killing nearly 500 persons who had become trapped inside. November 29, 1864. U.S. Army troops, led by Colonel John Chivington, attacked and killed at least 400 Cheyenne and Arapaho Indians at Sand Creek, Colorado, after they had already surrendered. November 30, 1782. A provisional peace treaty was signed between Great Britain and the United States, heralding the end of America's War of Independence. The final treaty was signed in Paris on September 3, 1783. It declared the U.S. to be free, sovereign, and independent states, and that the British Crown relinquishes all claims to the government, propriety, and territorial rights of the same, and every part thereof. It's been a year since we started the Heritage Hunters podcast, and we would like to thank some of our YouTube subscribers. Bob Robertson, ABCW, Thomas McKenty, J. Shilliga 3, Genealogist Journal Podcast, Brian H. Harris, Julie Martin, Bam Bam, Barbara Tien, Marie Laurie Gerard Savoe, Barbara Samuel, Cheryl Ham, Mike Sedano, Cheryl Levi, and Lori Tustin. Thank you for joining us today on Heritage Hunters. This has been a CNC production recorded and mixed by me, Barbara May. We would like to thank our guests for sharing their genealogical experiences and personal stories. Be sure to visit us on our webpage, heritage-hunters.com, and our many social media pages such as Facebook, Twitter, Locals, and more. Please leave us a review, like our page, and follow us to be sure to never miss our show. If you'd like to be on the show or have an idea for an upcoming episode, please email us at 2heritage.hunters at gmail.com. And that's the number 2, heritage.hunters at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Remember to like and subscribe to our podcast. We hope you'll join us next month on Heritage Hunters. This has been a CNC production.